Gilbury. John Fahey had a colourful life. In southeast Queensland, we know of just a few convicts who fled into the bush, and were welcomed into clan life after being recognised as deceased family members returning from the dead. The first escapee, James Sterry Baker or Baralco, joined Moppy's people in the Lockyer from 1826 to his surrender in 1840. The second was George Brown, a silly ones known as Shag Brown who lived with the clans near Ipswich until he was killed by a clan he had offended. The most famous was James Davis, Durambois, who lived in Wide Bay until giving himself up to the Petrie expedition. Another was David Bracewell, known to his Aboriginal family as Wandy. He returned with Davis only to be killed by a falling tree branch on Monday 1 April 1844, one while working at Stephen Simpson's station. The fifth here is relatively unknown. His name, John Fahey, or to his Carby Carby family, he was Gilbury. Thomas Petrie writes in Tom Petrie's Reminiscences of Early Queensland, dating from 1837, two or three convicts in the old days, who escaped and lived afterwards with the blacks were, James Davis Duramboy, Bracefield Wandy, and John Fahey Gilbury. Archibald Meston writes about Gilbury in The Genesis of Toowoomba. We may be fairly sure that the first white man who ever stood on Mobullen and saw the Bunya feasts, the fights and corroborees, was John Fahey, a life sentence prisoner. He was adopted by the local tribe, who called him Gilbury the Bell Bird, and he remained with them, until brought to Brisbane, in December 1854. Born in March 1814, in Galway, Fahey enlisted, aged 20, into the 27th Inniskilling Regiment for service in South Africa. This famous regiment with battle honours going back to Waterloo and before had been posted in the West Indies in December 1823. Of their full complement of 550 officers and men they lost some 302 to disease, so returning to their home base in Enniskillen they needed to recruit for the South African campaign. Gaelic posters went up around Ireland, and John Fahey for one was attracted to the King's shilling. It is imagined that he walked the 50 miles north to Ballyshannon on the River Erne and enlisted at the recruiting office by the river in the town. Fahey would have been primarily a Gaelic speaker, and if his under-officers were also Irish and gave instructions in Gaelic and not English, then his use of English was limited. As reinforcements for the 27th, Fahey sailed from Cork to Cape Colony in 1835, as the frontier war was coming to a close. Not long after arriving in South Africa, Fahey was convicted of being drunk while on guard duty. He spent November 1835 in solitary confinement for that offence. Official records from both British Museum and the Inniskilling Museum are able to give very little detail, but
but we are able to rely a little on South African military history journals. They tell of unrest among the rank and file of the 27th, and that it had been brewing since the Frontier War had ended. Probably caused because the Army was going to detach many of the newer recruits before their training was complete, but also conditions and lack of rations also played their part. On a route march from Fort Peddle to their headquarters in Grahamstown on 19 February 1837, the disgruntled soldiers mutinied, and Ensign I.C. Crow was killed. Fahey, while probably not taking part in the mutiny, however took the opportunity to desert his regiment. Following court-martials, two of the Boer auxiliaries, Myers and Stephanus, were executed, and Fahey was imprisoned with some 20 British soldiers in Robben Island Prison. There Fahey, as a deserter in the British Army was tattooed with the D, under his left arm, and committed to life as a convict in New South Wales. John Fahey was transported on Clyde, arriving at Port Jackson on 10 September 1838. We have no record as to where Fahey served as a convict from his arrival in late 1838 to early 1841. In 1841 Fahey was assigned to a chain gang with about 80 other convicts building a new road from Port Macquarie to Armadale to help station owner, Major Archibald Clunes Innes export his wool. On 20 April, he assaulted a fellow prisoner, and given eight days, in the cells. Again, the records available are very limited, so much of the detail is still to be discovered. As the road gang neared Armadale, there were a number of escapes. George Wilson, Long Tom Forrester and three others ran on 5 April 1841. Wilson and Forrester were finally caught and both hanged at Newcastle in April 1843 for attacking Francis Big who was on his way to Morden Bay. Then on Thursday of November 1841, Fahey ran for the first time, but was recaptured within a month. Seven he faced court again and was given 50 lashes for escaping. The new convict-built road was beginning to be used commercially, and first drays with wool bales arrived at the port from Inns Kentucky Station, near Armadale on 10 March 1842. On Sunday 24 April 1842, Fahey was able to escape again. One news report written over 60 years after Fahey's escape that day, said that he was able to knock out their obnoxious overseer, and commit him to a miserable death tied down to an ant's nest. Over 80 years later Meston was to repeat the same story in his article Life Among Blacks. Convict records list only one man escaping from that area in April 1842, and that was John Fahey. Fahey was able to move quickly into the bush and turned north, and according to a later deposition, came to the Darling Downs with the Drays. Once on the Downs, he joined up and was accepted into clan life. 
He was classified as an escapee the following month, and his description was published as 0.5 foot 9 inches, brown complexion, brown hair, brown eyes, small scar on right side of under lip, a mole and D under left arm, JF inside lower right arm, scar on left elbow, three scars on left knee. As an outsider, the clan would be suspicious of this outsider, but his life was spared by one of the oldest chiefs of that clan. Lie down black fella, wake up white fella, he was later to say explaining how he was thought to be the reincarnation of an old chief's son that had been killed in battle. Over time he received that clan's traditional body marking and scaring, and took the name, Gilbury, the name according to Archibald Meston means bellbird. These unmistakable Bora marks on his breast and left shoulder, clear proof that he had been through that ceremony, called Barul in the Bunya country, and he referred to it in the most respectful and flattering terms. Barul is the term used for man-making ceremonies. There is another explanation to the meaning of the name Gilbury from linguist, Des Crump at Queensland State Library. He looked at the Warwick Gittable word lists, and made the assessment that Gilkill was the shortened for to die or be dead, while Buri means to come back. This may well refer to Gilbury initially being sentenced to death by the Downs elders, and then saved by his adopted father, so brought back from the dead. 14 Then in late 1842 or early in 1843, Fahey's host clan on the Darling Downs, received an invitation to attend the Bunya Mountains gatherings and take part in the Great Festival. Fahey went with the clan, and once in the Bunya country met up with people from the Kabi nation who adopted him in much the same way as Duramboy and Wandi had been years earlier all in the same geographical wide bay area. However the true meaning of Gilbury means bellbird that has come back from the dead. The totem of the dead chief's son was the bellbird so it also became Gilburus. Fahey had red hair, which was considered sacred amongst Aboriginal people. There was always consideration that warriors were being aided by escaped convicts, and John Fahey came under scrutiny in the country ranging from Cressbrook Station to the southern outstation of Tyro. David McConnell was convinced that, there is a white man among them, and then two years later, in a letter to his brother, Frederick, living in Manchester, added, There is a white man with them, for, we have several times seen tracks of a man wearing boots among the blacks' tracks, their attacks on the cattle display such cunning and judgment that we think there is a white man to assist them. Despite the accusations, for the next 13 years Gilbury lived in the southern Wide Bay area in harmony with that clan, and appearing very rarely in view of any white man. He lived with the Aboriginal people occupying the country lying between Wide Bay and Dolby, called by the Aboriginal people, as Fahey says, Budua. This is traditional name for Bolia a rural locality in the Gympie region. 
Fahi understood the dialects of the several tribes occupying that tract of country. From the day of his absconding, until his apprehension, he says that he never saw a white man, or the track of one, nor had he heard among the aboriginals of any party of white men crossing that part of the country. Fahi was seen near current-day Kenilworth. The people from that part of the Mary River around Gimby, were known as Kabi Kabi. Henry Stuart Russell was leading an exploration team through Wide Bay in 1844 using a map and information he received from Duramboy James Davies. Henry Russell's team were deep in the Bunya Scrub Wide Bay, when they came across a mob of about 50 to 60 strong. The exploring party halted within about 14 meters of them. Russell says the tribe neither approached nor retreated, but then one white man, Gilbury, came forward, and to Russell's astonishment addressed them with, Who are you, white fellow? Russell writes in his diary that Fahey was from the south and had committed some depredations. He was afraid of being shot. The tribe he was with had never seen white men before, though they had heard of them. We allowed this fellow to come close up, desiring him to tell the others to stand back. I stationed our native boy behind, to see that they did not steal around us. They wished to be friendly, but we declined further intercourse, upon which they gently retreated, making no attempt to molest us. Had they seen us first, they would, in all probability, have tracked us unseen and, taking a favorable opportunity, have attacked us." The following letter is translated by Gilbury on behalf of a headman named Wangalibi. It shows the mob were reading newspapers and send this letter to warn the colony to disband the native mounted police, or else. Morden Bay Courier, Saturday 10 July 1852, page 2 to the editor of the Morden Bay Courier. Sir, through my interpreter, I learn, with satisfaction, that I have still some white friends in this district, and considering the annoyance my tribe has been put to by those rascals my own countrymen, called by the whites native police, I have ordered a letter to be written for the purpose of expressing my warm thanks to squatter, melancholy, and others who I hope will not rest till they get those black fellows that carry the Delumpy, and wear the red cap, sent back to their own land. Not being able to speak English, I have ordered the interpreter to put down on paper what I say, so that the white fellows may understand me. Now, sir, what right have the black police, as they are called in the last letter interpreted to? me, to come to my territory, and stop, or try to stop, my tribe from eating a few monkeys when we feel hungry. Is not all the country ours, having descended from generation to generation, before we knew such an animal as a white man? And I am sure you will agree with me in thinking that the least thing the white fellows can do, is to let us take sheep for the use of the grass. Squatter, in his letter, 
talks of crimes being more frequent, and deeds darker. He also talks of fellow creatures being slaughtered. No doubt he alludes to us, who have suffered severely from the black police. We have not half a chance to knock a croppy on the head and get off safely, with a flock of sheep. If we try it, down come these savage police, and take the property, which is as much ours as the kangaroo is the white man's, and they always drop a few of us, only just because we try to defend ourselves or run away. Pray, sir, try all you can to get the police disbanded. We long for the good old times again. The white fellows can't track, and we know some snug places, where we could kill and eat a few thousand sheep at our leisure, if it were not for these devils of police. I am, sir, your obedient servant. W-A-N-G-A-L-L-I-B-E-E. -E, Chief of Wide Bay. Camp, Burnett Range, 10 June 1852. Asterisk monkeys was mob slang for sheep in the 1850s. Finally, almost 11 years after running from authorities near Armadale, a man named Robinson went to look for survivors of the Thomas King shipwreck in the last six months of 1852. On 25 December 1852, a report appeared in the Morden Bay Courier stating that Mr. Robinson, the person who was actively engaged in the search for the missing seamen of the wrecked ship Thomas King, ascertained from some Aboriginal people belonging to the North Coast that a white man, whom they called Gilbury, was with the tribes further to the northward. Through his Aboriginal informants, Mr. Robinson urged Gilbury to come into Brisbane, telling him that if he did not the native police would be sent after him. Gilbury replied that, he would not come, and did not care for the native police, indicating that he and the Aboriginal people could easily avoid them by going into the Bunya scrub. He is described as being a tall and powerful man without clothing. By that point in time he had been about eleven years with the clans and lived in the mountain country separating Morden Bay from Wide Bay, in the vicinity of Kilkeven Station. He was a healthy sun-bronzed forty-year-old. Then on 14 November 1854 surveyors sighted him and some other warriors near the headwaters of the Mary River. The surveyors claimed that Gilbury surrendered to them, and then they handed him over to Lieutenant Bly. Their claim is that they thought Gilbury was a prisoner of the Aboriginal party they could see through their glasses in the distance, and began a rescue. The surveyors' party pronounced his clan name as Boljua. According to the Libby Connors book, Warrior, the murderers of Mrs. Shannon included Dundali. Umali, Billy Barlow, Stinkub, Mikolo, Burra, Dunrobury, Milbong Jemmy, Dick Ben. Another account, more in favour of Bly, reports that he was captured by Bly's patrol, who, on the 14th instant December, on the head of the Mary, I apprehended the prisoner in a scrub there. 
I had heard about a year ago of a white man being with the blacks for some time, ever since I had been in the district. Yet another later, reported that, the blacks with him Gilberry was his aboriginal name, resisted violently and, at one time, it looked as if Bly and his party would be beaten off. Fifty years after Gilbury surrendered, a memoir told of Bly's actions at Baramba Station on that day, galloped up to the station, surrounded all the blacks, male and female, and handcuffed all around a large gum tree all that night, when Mr. Bly and his troopers were ready, they released all the blacks from the tree, and he and his troopers started for the Bunya Bunya scrub where they managed to secure the white man. Another historian, from the well-read sketcher, added even more color and detail to Gilbury's arrest at the hands of Bly. He writes over 60 years later. The party of police located the camp Fay Sick was in, one of the troopers stripped nude, and with boomerangs in his belt and a tomahawk in hand, pretending to be looking for honey, he got close enough to hear Fay talking in the camp. When the mounted troopers in ambush surrounded the camp, Fay called on the tribe to protect him. Bly at once rode at him, and covering him with his revolver threatened to shoot him. He was then handcuffed and taken away. One evening, a little before sunset, Lieutenant Bly, of the native police and his troopers came galloping up to the station and surrounded all the blacks, male and female, also the blacks that were in constant work on the station, and handcuffed them all around a large gum tree all that night. His object in doing so was that he, Bly, was after a white man, Gilbury, who had been living with the blacks some time, and this white man was supposed to be amongst the blacks at the Bunya Bunya scrub, about 16 miles from Baramba Station. On 20 December 1854, Sub-Lieutenant Bly reported to Marshall that after receiving information that the escaped convict Fahey, was encamped with Aboriginal people at Ubi Flats at Mary River. They were 16 miles from Baramba Station. He searched the camp and found him. Bly had taken Fahey and brought him to Brisbane and delivered him into the charge of the constabulary there. John Fahey did not speak English for two days. John Fahey was very difficult to track as his women would cover his footprints. He was always seen accompanying the murderers of Mrs. Shannon, John O'Connell Bly, December 1854. Chief Commissioner of Lands Arthur E. Halloran mentions Gilbury in his 1854 report on Aborigines. During my last journey to inspect runs, in a distant and unoccupied part of the district a white man, known as Gilbury, who for the last 15 years has been living among the Aborigines, and who is said to have instigated them to commit depredations was fortunately captured by Lieutenant Bly and his native police who were with me. The circumstance caused great excitement amongst the blacks who hung about us in considerable numbers on the mountains during our stay. Fahey, 
now back with English-speaking people, is reported to have taken two days until he could communicate. On reflection, his primary language until age 20 was Gaelic, then he would have learned some English in army and jail. For the years from 1842 to surrender in 1854 he spoke a dialect of the Kabi Kabi nation, so it is not surprising he was hesitant to communicate in English. Gilbury spent time in Brisbane jail with a fellow warrior tribesman named Dundali, who led a resistance from Bribey Island with his brother Umali from 1843. Dundali was born on the muddy banks of the Moonabula Mary River in the Bunya Scrub in 1820. He was captured and brutally hung on January 5, 1855. Ironically Dundali was hung near the current Anzac Memorial Park in the city. A place that recognizes all war heroes except the warriors of the frontier wars. This has got a change. Other warriors included Mikolo, Bara, Bidong, Dargilbo, Jularani, Anbaybari, Mulbari, Daki, Dundali, Umali, Yilbong Jemi, Kagarui, Johnny Campbell, Wild Toby. He was sent to Sydney on the boomerang, arriving late on Christmas Eve, 24 December where he was treated to a restaurant-cooked Christmas dinner, in consideration that many years have elapsed since he had a Christmas dinner. On 2 January 1855 admitted into Darlinghurst Jail. Again no official convict records seem to be available that could add to these newspaper reports. At Cockatoo Island, Fahey was returned to be worked on the public roads, in irons for 12 months. While in Sydney, he was united with his brother Dennis who had emigrated in 1853. Another brother, Patrick was to emigrate three or four years later. Fate was once again to intervene into Fahey's life. Augustus Charles Gregory was assembling a large party of explorers to go into the unknown north of Australia, and elected to take, a man named Fahey, a prisoner from Cockatoo Island, who is expected to be useful. Gregory in his diary on 27 March 1855 adds, to Cockatoo Island to secure the services of a Crown prisoner, John Fahey who has been 12 years with the Aborigines in the northern districts and whose experience of a bush life will probably render him a useful man for the North Australian expedition. Gregory who was born in Nottingham in 1819, and had emigrated to Swan River Colony with his family as a 10-year-old. He was a hardened colonial, and was not disappointed with his choice of John Fahey as the bushman on the expedition. He leaves for Brisbane with Gregory on 18 July 1855. There is also a man named Fahey, a prisoner from Cockatoo Island, who is expected to be useful. 
it may be remembered that this man was for a long time living in a state of barbarism with the Aboriginal blacks, in the neighborhood of the Bunya Mountains, and that he was captured by Lieutenant Bly, of the native police. Gregory only mentions Fahey a few times in his journal. The 19th of November 1855, Faye is on the sick list. The 21st of November 1855, Faye, being convalescent, was employed as cook. The 2nd of April 1856, at 6:45 a.m., started from the depot with Messrs. H. Gregory, Baines, and John Faye taking four riding and two pack horses, carrying 18 days rations. The 5th of April 1856, Fay obtained a large quantity of mussels from the pools in the creek, they proved an excellent addition to our supper, though rather deficient in flavor. The 19th of May 1856, Fay and Selby burning charcoal and general camp duties. Gregory also became critical to John Fahey gaining a conditional pardon, which was publicly advised on 27 April 1857, just four months after the North Australian expedition returned to Brisbane. Fahey received a pardon on the condition that he could not return to Ireland or England. Surprisingly there is a file on John Fay at UK National Archives at Q with the letters and papers supporting his conditional pardon. Listed in the package, among endorsements from Gregory and Denison, is a letter from Bridget Fahey. In a search during June 2021, that letter was missing, either lost, or misfiled. Bridget is thought to have been John's wife and mother to a daughter, but without being able to cite the letter, we are unable to confirm any of its contents. After his work with Gregory, Fahey, now a free man, was joined by brother Patrick, and together they worked in the Jimbore shearing sheds for the 1860 season, using the alias name of Brian Thirty. He was recognized as the famous Gilbury, and Mr. Bell, the owner of Jimbor asked the pair to leave before old wounds could be reignited. We know very little of his life after leaving Jimbor in 1860–61. There are numerous, rumors, very few of which can be authenticated by newspaper or government documentation. Dennis Fahey is thought to have been killed in a bar fight in Brisbane's Queen Street. It is told that he was smashed in the head with an axe handle and buried in Paddington around 1865, but again there is no news or official evidence for that. The story told in social history is that his family however rebelled against him, and after taking his property had him committed into Woogaroo Mental Asylum where he died in 1902, aged 88 years. However, the only Fahey reported to have died at Woogaroo was thought to be a Patrick, a well-educated, young man. He died of depression in the hospital in late November or early December, 1868. 
it is suspected that John joined his third brother, hotelier, Patrick Fahey in the New South Wales district of Orange after the death of Dennis Fahey in Brisbane. There is a Patrick Fahey who owned the steam engine hotel from 1870–1875. What happened to the man known as Gilbury, one of the very few who ran from European authority and became a trusted warrior of the Kabi Kabi nation? <laughs>